everybody. We, I was looking at the numbers at 9. I'm like, wow, that daylight saving time. It'll take the wind out of us. But, but we're here. We're here. We made it. And, and I, am, I am reeling from the truth of Father Andrew's sermon that you will soon, some of you will soon listen to. And how Lent has exposed who I actually am. I've been having some dialogues with some of you about uh, just the, the gloom that kind of comes over me this time of year, which is exactly not the point of Lenten disciplines, and yet, nevertheless, that's my response to it. And yet, and then, and then of course, you, you know you're not supposed to fast on Sundays because then you'd be fasting 46 days and not 40. Uh, you're not better than Jesus, right? And, and so then when it, when it comes, well, I can do, oh, yes, the joy of, of the sun going down and, and on Saturday, and I can indulge, in all, and, and yet the joy is not there. Because those things, life is not found in them. And I'm trying to find that joy that comes from the challenge of the order of loves that Augustine talks about, of that he is, of course, the one from whom all joys proceed. And I, I had a couple of days where I took up the wonderful challenge we had of giving up caffeine. I couldn't, couldn't keep it up, couldn't keep it up. But, but maybe, who knows, maybe, maybe it's not over yet. We're still in the middle of this. So who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? This is in the context of the calling of Abram who becomes Abraham, and there's this claim in Romans 4 that God gives life to the sort of living and calls into existence the things that are already doing okay but need a little bit of improvement, right? That's what, oh wait, no wait, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence. God is in the business of ex nihilo creation, right? And what's threatening about this verse I hope you see why this, why is this threatening to the virtue tradition? (laughs) Why is that a threat? (laughs) Why would the reformers have seized upon this and said, wait a second now, what does the Bible say? Is prudence being developed with faith? Is grace perfecting nature, the great bumper sticker of Thomas Aquinas? Or is there some new thing being created. Do you see that tension? And if we feel that tension, if we reside in it, then we're going to be in a position to think about why this transition, a very important transition from the cardinal virtues to the theological virtues, which we're in now, is important. We're going from prudence and fortitude and temperance into the most important ones, the ones that come from God. And the question about the relationship between them is a fraught place in the history of theology. It's very tense because of verses like this. So we've got to think about this and wonder and wrestle with that in the, in the hour we have together. And I think we'll have enough time to do that. So let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you that like Lazarus, you do bring forth what you want in us from nothing. (laughs) And yet you also created everything in grace. There's nothing that's outside the realm of your goodness and favor. Help us to wrestle with this paradox this morning. 
Help us to think about what it means to be people of faith all the way down. We ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit enlivening our minds, encouraging us, fortifying us to pursue this Lenten journey with you and to find you to be our first love and in comparison to other loves, our only love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our catechesis going back, and a lot of you, not everyone was here going way back, but a long time ago we had a, we had a wonderful series on Galatians that Mike took us through, just real deep exegesis of that book for an entire spring. And then before that we talked about the way this building works visually and theologically, because it does both. And then we went into English spirituality. We were led by Martin Thornton into a rather Catholic, small-c take on the Church of England and its history that goes back for him. It's grounded well before the Reformation. We examined that, so, and then we, we covered some of the Reformation. But we, for that year, we mostly focused on these more Catholic, small-c developments in the Church. And now we're doing the Virtues and the Vices, 2016 and 2017. We had Bethany on Wrath. Um, we mixed that in there because we had to get in that um, one that was a little out of place, but it's still working together, and we're, and we're sliding into the theological virtues, as I mentioned. And what I just want to point out here is that our plan is to focus on grace in all of its, its aspects in 2017 and 2018, in conjunction with the 500th anniversary. And the books that I have as a possible inspiration that we give to our teachers, that you can pick one, We've got Fleming Rutledge's new book on the crucifixion, this extraordinary life work of hers, and it is magnificent. It's, I like to describe it as the best things that are possibly happening in Protestant seminaries um, is packed together into this book in a brilliant way. Really exciting, incredible developments. And then Paul Zoll, you'll hear him mention, you heard him mention in the sermon last week, his work on grace in practice his, the Protestant face of Anglicanism is a complement to Martin Thornton. Actually, it's a pretty aggressive resistance to it, to a certain extent. And we have room for both of these traditions. We are going to consider exploring that under the rubric of grace. So we're going to do grace in Scripture, really ground ourselves in the Old Testament and New Testament. We'll get some Augustine in there again because, of course, he's the great father of grace. The Continental and English Reformation do our Luther, do our Calvin, maybe some Martin Bucer in there and talk about Cranmer and others. Um, the Evangelical Anglicanism that we touched upon last year and grace in family life, in work, in politics, in film, in art history. And I mention this because if you would like to teach upon any of those subjects, I like to get that started early um, and for you to think about that and possibly consider approaching me if that's something you're interested in. And the reason is because teaching will transform, first of all, you. And my role is as catechist of this church, and what I watch is the way that doing these preparations change me and the way that it changes the teachers because you're the first one that needs to be transformed so that the rest of everyone else can be transformed as well. And so... To put that baton into your hand and put you up here is a really helpful experience. And it's a lot of work and it's exciting. But I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, we get to know the rest of the congregation when new people come up here. Um, 
you learn the material, of course, best of all. You might not have the gift of teaching, but you also can't assume that if you don't teach the way I do or the way Bethany does or someone else does, that you don't have that. There's different ways of doing it. Um, It's serious work, and that's why we share the load, because if one person was to do it every time, that person would just burn out. Um, and there's no, uh, there's no stipend that's being offered to people. It, it is, all you get is a book <laughs> for all of this labor that goes into it. So it is a labor of love. It's a way of serving this congregation. Um, we usually do bring in at least one extra speaker per year. And, we, um, and in, in this case, that person is Dr. Jay Wood, who has been the architect behind this Vices and Virtues series when it was taught and, and experienced by some Wheaton faculty. So we're really excited to have him next week where he'll talk to us about the intellectual virtues. But I put that out there. A um, couple more things. I like sometimes saying, hey, I'd like you to think about for the year um, grace in raising children. Um, and that's like to, to ask one of you to do that would be like putting a magnet in your hand. If I, and then what happens is you go through life and the things collect on the magnet. And then you unload all the metal that you collected over the years. So that's why it's nice to get these things started early. So again, is there some topic that you might want to focus on? Play to your strengths if you have a particular expertise and how grace can apply to that. Grace, who knows, in finance, whatever it might be. Consider bringing that into this group. We are a very forgiving audience, you may have noticed. It's a great place to get started if you want to teach for, perhaps for a career. It... Um, if you have taught for a career, we need an age range. There's certainly no um, certain rule. You have to be a X amount of years old for this to happen. We would love to have other people of all kinds of ages up here. And finally, I want to thank those who have taught thus far. Again, it really enhances and enlivens this congregation. This, I'm, I'm sorry to say, is the one time where we're sort of all together, Right? Because now we've split to a two-service necessity, but this is a time where we're bundled together. There's a lot of important weight on this service, and so seeing more people up here would really be wonderful. My email is millinerd at gmail.com if you want to email me. Um, usually, it might take a couple times. Don't, don't hesitate. If, if I don't reply, it might, um, might just be volume. So would love to um, have one of you or perhaps a few more of you thinking about that in regard to grace. This is where we've been. Look at all these people who've helped us out as we've thought about this going all the way back to the fall. And remember we did the envy, lust, chastity, sloth, etc. And now we're moving ahead and we're going to, again, we've gone from the cardinal virtues to the theological virtues. We'll have a stop with the intellectual virtues next week. Faith, hope, and love. And then we've interspersed that, as you notice, with festivals And so we have the Annunciation coming up on March 26th. March 25th is the celebration of the Annunciation, so that's right on the heels of that. And then we'll also forecast on April 30th some of the summer festivals that we don't get to talk about because we're not in session. So things like the Feast of the Transfiguration, which happens on August 6th, things um, that just don't show up when we all happen to be here during the um, academic year, uh, we're going to be able to talk about those as well. So that's, that has been our plan thus far. So our readings from today, Abraham believed, and it's interesting, that's from Genesis 15, and that word in Hebrew is, could be translated, he amened, he amened the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul seizes upon this in our New Testament reading as well today and says, see, this was not Moses. This was before Moses. This was before law. All of the transactions were there. I have a friend who gave a talk with a Muslim and a Jew on Abram, Abraham at a venue. And both the Muslim and the Jew were talking about Abraham was this awesome guy. He went in there for the Muslim and he, he tore down the idols. And for the Jew, he was just this heroic man of faith. And my Christian friend kind of humbly inserted himself in this conversation. I don't know. Abraham wasn't that great. He didn't have much to offer at all. In fact, he believed in God's promise and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was as good as dead, wasn't he? That's what Romans 4.17 said. And God is in the business of bringing life from the dead. What do we have to offer into religious dialogue? It is that exclusive message of grace that is the uniqueness of what Christianity offers. And if you want to cause some sparks and have some interesting conversations and talking with Muslims and Jews, bring up grace. Because they'll say, I'm intrigued by that. That's fascinating. I shared with some of you at some of the Muslim dialogues we've had, I remember a major scholar in this area, a major Islamic scholar saying, Islam is merit-based. And my ears perked up because I was like, wow, if I said that, I, that would be a little risque. Hey, don't, don't talk about another tradition. No, no, no. He said it. defining. He knows it well, defining his own tradition. And I want to say, well, well Christianity's not. <laughs> what an interesting point of dialogue. We can cooperate in lots of ways, but there's an interesting difference there. And that's what makes Interreligious dialogue, interesting. To know the uniqueness of what we have to offer. A different take on Abraham that the Apostle Paul gives us. There's nothing about that that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be in cooperation and in neighborly love towards one another, but my goodness, is that an important difference that Paul highlights. So that is our first angle on the virtue of faith. But is it even a virtue is something we want to ask. Does does it operate according to the rules of habit that we've been emphasizing? Or is it something beyond that? Is it this pure gift? You can't work on it. It is just deposited into you. It is this offer. How do we think about it? Does it mess up the virtue tradition that we've been talking about? Or can it be massaged into it? Because remember, virtues are these habits that are built up. Does faith operate that way according to Paul? And then in John, my goodness, what a good lectionary offering for this question of the quote-unquote virtue of faith. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you'll hear, Father Andrew, you have heard him talk about that. So must the Son of Man be lifted up just to look up and see. Frank Lake, the psychologist, describes faith as a desperate, gaze in a counterintuitive direction. And of course, what comes right after John 3.15, you know, right? But one of the things to consider is that Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, you need to be improved. You need to take the good work you've been doing as a teacher of the law. You're just, you've got a lot of prudence and we're just going to you know, do a little capstone on the prudence. No, he insults him and says, you need to 
start over, press refresh. No, actually be born again, a really aggressive analogy. So just like Paul, Jesus has the audacity to not meet Nicodemus halfway. What is he thinking? Doesn't he know that all those cardinal virtues are really important, and Nicodemus may very well have had some of them, perhaps reading Philo of Alexandria on the side, who well, what came later. But you get the idea. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so there's our Greek word, pistis. It is impossible to please God. And when we read this verse from Hebrews in isolation, we might think, all right, I've got to please God. I've got to work up some faith. But faith is not a work like other works. It is a gift. It is, in fact, passivity to a certain extent. A response to what God has done for you, not what you are going to do for him. And when we understand that John and Paul, pretty serious authorities, when the background, then we can look at this and say, that's why it's impossible to please God. That's why you need faith to please God because of these transactions that he's done on your behalf and faith is just an a acceptance of, of that accomplishment. Again, the question, does this work with the virtue tradition or does it upset the virtue tradition? Tertullian. Christ's resurrection is certain because it's impossible. Tertullian, faced with early Christian father, faced with the challenges to people who don't believe, Greeks just like Paul in Acts 17, the Greeks just don't, and when Paul talks about the resurrection, they scoff, they walk away. There's a whole civilization that scoffs in the same way that Tertullian is placed within as a Christian, and instead of building up a really attractive apologetic, well, here's how I'm just going to get your mental synapses firing and start to see, don't you? It's just so logical that this happened. That He says, no, it's absurd. Believe it because of its absurdity. So says Tertullian. It is a shocking apologetic strategy. And it, in some senses, was profoundly opposed to the Neoplatonic and the Manichaean self-reflective certainty. I get this from Jay Wood's wonderful article in the Rutledge Companion to Philosophy on the Virtue of Faith. And he says, you've got these two oppositions. You've got Christians saying, well, I don't care. It, it's, it's ridiculous that he rose from the dead. He did, but that's why you should believe it, because of its impossibility. If God were to do something, wouldn't it be kind of impossible? Exactly. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And it shatters this Neoplatonic, reason-based ladder climbing up to the one. Really fascinating. And in the middle of that, we find our lovely Augustine. Understanding is the reward of faith. Seek not to understand in order to believe, but fides quarens intellectum, right? Believe in order to understand. Faith seeking understanding. Believe in order to understand. Belief comes first, but Augustine, right there in the middle of these two extremes, says, okay, Tertullian, I hear what you're saying, but you have to understand that there's going to come some degree of intellectual satisfaction after that first place of belief. 
If you're trying to work your mind up to God, not going to work. But if you receive the gift of faith, then there will be some degree of understanding. And when we see that, it's kind of hard to begrudge that to Augustine. You've got to give it to him. And this is the key to Christian intellectual development. And so this tradition emerges, and I think it's something we should celebrate. So when we look at Augustine, we might say, wait a second. Now, there is a sense in which you can exercise your faith like a virtue and build up that ability after its initial reception. So this is the way that the early Christian tradition developed. There's our Thomas Aquinas figure who showed up in our series last year, an important influence in the Anglican tradition, okay, There's Tertullian again, believed because it's absurd. There's our Aristotelian certainty in this case, right? Because those texts were being translated and there's a new degree of rational certitude that was emerging. And Thomas Aquinas, like Augustine, one of his chief inspirations is right there in the middle. To give assent to the truths of faith is not foolishness, even though they are above reason. It's not foolishness. It's not absurd in the Tertullian sense. They're above reason, yes. They're not irrational, but they're transrational. That's one of my favorite ways of putting it. It's not like you just don't press the the pedal of intellect anymore. You press it all the way to the floor, and you're going 75, 85, 95 miles per hour, and then you hit faith in the sense of you're, you're beyond reason. You haven't canceled it out completely. You haven't jumped out of the vehicle. So that's a, an important perspective as well. And Thomas Aquinas, he builds a whole system around this in a beautiful way. And he's one of our individuals who's responsible for talking about how the cardinal virtues are supplemented and transcended by the theological virtues of which faith is the first one. And it's brilliant and it's beautiful. And we should read it. If you understand this tradition, you have the notional understanding, which is knowledge being known, the creeds, right? God exists, all these things are true. And you'll notice up there I have a demon, right? Because demons have that notional understanding of faith, right? They know God is there. This is what James points out. It's like, big deal. So what if you know God is there? But then, in this great Catholic tradition that we are formed by to an extent, you have Ascensus in Latin, accepting the content and applying it to oneself. That's a different kind of faith, a more enhanced way of understanding. And then fiducia, entrusting oneself to God's care. That's what the demons don't have, which is why they're demonic. And so faith is not just knowledge about God. It is a personal relationship with God. It brings all these other developments that Dr. Wood is going to walk us through next week. And this is an important aspect of what faith is. And so if we go to the Spanish chapel that we talked about before, we see Thomas Aquinas on his throne again. And there you know who they are. There are cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And faith, the cross, and the shield is hovering above. You know the other two. There they are, hope and love. And so this is Thomas at its absolute height, that maturation, we could say, of the Augustinian tradition. Faith illuminates our mind so we might believe that which exceeds our ability to demonstrate. 
It's a harmonious view built upon the mind that already needs prudence to understand reality. And then faith supplements that, adds something that was not there. And it's not that the Reformation necessarily protested that understanding. In fact, the Reformation enhanced it. Faith honors him whom it trusts with the most reverent and highest regard, says Luther, since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. There's no other honor equal to the estimate of truthfulness and righteousness with which we honor him whom we trust. Giving that faith, accepting God at his word, and the heart is involved with this kind of faith as much as the mind. There's a warmth to this understanding because, of course, Luther is learning from this tradition as well. And for John Calvin, his definition of faith, a sure and firm knowledge of the divine favor toward us, founded on the truth of free promise in Christ and revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then... If we were to illustrate it, though, there's a need to depart from that supplemental understanding that we saw in the Spanish chapel. And now we're back to our law-gospel dichotomy that we looked at before. Except I changed it around a little bit. Cronach did so many of these that, in this case, the reason I like this one is because this guy, like me, is oriented toward the law. His piety is fixating upon the things that he's going to do for God, and his head has to be pointed in this counterintuitive direction of faith. That's why I like this particular one. It's like, that's what we want. We want to get back into that system of reward and award for the things that we've done. And there's constantly, even Moses is saying, come on now, look in this direction. I can't help you here. And so this motif that Chronic goes to again and again is what leads to this perhaps rude, perhaps aggressive emphasis on faith alone as the thing that is necessary. Because there was, as much as Luther and Calvin are emphasizing that warmth as well, they felt that there was something that was missing that this idea of law that we've been talking about had seeped in such that you were attempting to justify yourself and somehow the idea of faith alone was an important emphasis that then was contested because this idea was dangerous to the religious systems in the 16th century. And that is the conflict that brought this church, the Anglican church, to a certain extent into existence. And there we have... I wanted to go through the Heidelberg Disputation a little bit. Because I think what that's going to do is to (laughs) emphasize this scandal that emerged as a result of this faith understanding taking on a life of its own. Why did this become something that the church had to divide over? The Heidelberg Disputation is Luther in the 1520s after the tapping on the door, there is a maturation of his point of view. And a lot of people say, if you want to understand and crystallize Luther to where he is, the Heidelberg Disputation will give you the nucleus of 
this radical insight in a really developed and, and punchy and right-to-the-point way. Although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. <laughs> that is an offense to the good things that we have done or think we have done to please God. And Luther is, I mean, he's just taking a highlighter. He's throwing, in some senses, a a, a rhetorical grenade into this system and saying, when you understand faith in the way that Paul describes it, and Jesus talks about it in John John chapter 3, it really is going to be offensive, and you're supposed to be offended by this statement. As one commentator puts it, (laughs) we are inveterate theologians of glory. God cannot come appealing to our religious aspirations. It's much too negative, gloomy, and depressing, this Lutheran view. Our complaint that we might have when we hear it, as is generally true with Luther, doesn't really refute it as much as it proves what Luther's trying to say. Are you offended by this suggestion? If you are, then you're getting at what he's trying to say. This is the radicalness that he rediscovers thanks to Erasmus's New Testament critical work. He's like, oh, I saw it as if for the first time. And faith all of a sudden is emerging as something that is in competition, perhaps, or in opposition to the cardinal virtues, not a nice, happy cherry on top of the Sunday that you've already built for yourself. He is not righteous who works much, but he who, without works, believes much in Christ. That's this faith alone singularity. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe this, and everything is already done. That is this understanding of faith alone that perhaps is this horrific accretion, this wart on the Christian tradition, ruins it, or is it this necessary development that will set our souls free in our works righteousness projects during the season of Lent? (laughs) The power to do good comes only out of this wild claim that everything is already done. Everything, capital letters, is accomplished And that's what faith puts you in touch with. It has all been accomplished on your behalf, and anything that you do is a mere response. That is the ecosystem in which this faith alone tradition that we're a part of emerges. In this this, big bang of this insight that shatters things, and, and that's where faith emerges from within this tradition. And when Luther has his debate with... Erasmus, on the free will, there is a a falling out between these two deeply humanistic scholars. Because Erasmus is saying, well, don't you see, there's kind of a a role to which our will is involved in this. It's sort of a preparation. It's really important. We're going to be involved. And Luther's understanding of faith alone says, no, no, our wills are not involved at all, Erasmus. Erasmus. And Luther was a little embarrassed at the end of his life about some of the things that he said. But when it came to his debate with Erasmus, his response is called on the bondage of the will. He says, that is the best thing I did. I I got Erasmus. I definitely won that debate. Publish that. Keep that going. And what Luther says in his debate with Erasmus is that 
as the experience of all self-justifiers proves, because I was a self-justifier, I was trying to build up some impressive resume, and as I myself learned to my bitter cost through so many years, this is the culmination of this incredible exchange with Erasmus, but now, since God has taken my salvation out of my hands into his, making it depend on his choice and not mine, and has promised to save me not by my own work or exertion, but by his grace and mercy, I am assured and certain both that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and also that he is too great and powerful for any demon or any adversary to be able to break him or to snatch me from him. This explosion of the heart that comes as a result of God's favor and goodness towards him and faith alone (laughs) becomes the watchword to define this transaction. And so the question that I have that I'd like for us to consider as we open time for questions, I want to uh, move into that, is, and this is, we'll, we'll linger on this for a while, is what do we make of that perspective on faith? So I've got the cardinal virtues supplemented by the theological virtues from Thomas Aquinas up here, and then I've got Luther down here, and I just um, picked a, a contemporary theologian who thinks this is really dangerous. I believe David Diego is a Catholic convert. He says, the assumption of a radical antagonism between law and gospel, which you see here, is a fundamental misconstrual of the coherence of Christian faith. Do not make that divide that Luther is talking about. Be careful. No, no, no. You can smooth them together. And then, again, you have Gerhard Ferdi, who's commenting upon the Heidelberg Catechism. If justification comes at the beginning of the process, right, if it's part of this elaborate ordo salutis of the way your heart comes to faith, then the process is unnecessary. And if it comes at the end, justification is unnecessary. He's saying to the intimate systems where justification is a sort of a little way station along the way to your sanctification, he's like, you don't understand. It actually continues to violate that system. And so I put those two up there for us to think about is how do we want to consider faith in this congregation, right? Are we on the Spanish chapel side or are we on the chronic side? How does it operate in your life? Has faith for you been a developed process or has it been a bolt out of the blue? What's so interesting, and Ryan Kemp is in our congregation as well. He's a Kierkegaard specialist. And Tertullian comes back in 19th century Northern Europe, Kierkegaard says, you know what? You know that absurdity thing? Oh, you need to hear the absurdity of faith. He comes along and he says, oh, I know you, nice, you have your nice system. And it's all, Christianity just fits so beautifully into it. But I'm going to talk about the kind of faith that is absolutely ridiculous. And you need to hear that because the resurrection is foolishness to the Greeks and you've become a Greek. There might need to be our Tertullian or a Kierkegaard in our pockets sometimes to remind us of the radicalness of this all. So what do we think about this? There's a great tradition of faith as a virtue. Let's open it up instead of just piling on more slides. What do you think? Where does this play into your life?
or any clarifications that I could make in regard to this. Go ahead. Uh-huh. The threat of purgatory was terrifying. So when you're lying on your bed, on your deathbed, you're absolutely in utter terror at what is on the other side. And that that moment, the priest comes to you and, like the the hymn "Abide with Me," yeah. holds a cross and says, "Look to Christ." At that moment of, of your death, look to Christ. Yes. Without trusting yourself, Luther says. Not then, but all times. That is what faith is, yeah. not just on your deathbed, but throughout your entire life. Wow. That has been helpful for me. And what a conciliating gesture, too, because he's saying all of that stuff about faith and looking to Christ is there in the Catholic tradition, but it was just concealed from me. And so take that deathbed moment, because guess what? Um, we're all on our deathbeds from God's perspective. He, we have to approach him as dead people. Um, and then we are, as Christians, the living dead, right? And we are, we are walking in this truth, in this identity that is not our own. And there's an, oh, I've got, a, I've got a little quote from the Council of Trent there. Um, but, um, won't go into all this, but there, a lot of these people who are rediscovering Luther today are saying, you have to understand, there really is this radical disconnect between who we are in Christ and who we once were. And it, we are, our true selves are hid with God in Christ. Now, the continuity might not be there. And there's, I'm just showing you, this is, this is a battle line that continues to be erected today. I saw someone else say, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Right. I'm so glad you pointed that out. Um, because remember this. Um, you can't see it very well, um, but remember, this is a detail from Michelangelo's Saint Peter and Chains. His beautiful monument to Julius II that I've argued is a, is a covert Protestant carving in a certain way. And what you see here is the flame. And Michelangelo's understanding, which was becoming illegal when he's reading about it, understood that love will naturally arise from true faith just like you cannot separate light from fire. It's just going to happen. It's going to naturally emerge. And so there really, I think, is this coherent understanding that is, sort of brings the traditions together that, of course, faith and love, they go together. But there was a concern the way that Luther was talking about faith that people were going to use this as license to just go around and do whatever they want to do, and then love is going to be de-emphasized. And so, in some senses, the impossibility of separating light from heat in a candle was nevertheless tragically separated as Catholics emphasized love and Protestants emphasized faith. But of course, both had both, 
But in the process of this dispute that took place, it seemed as if they had to be separated. So this paradox, this mystery that you're pointing out, um, shouldn't have to be uh, torn apart from one another, but unfortunately that's what happened. And I think Michelangelo gets it. I think he's reading these Closet Reformation documents in Italy, and he's like, yes, that's what I want. Faith is going to naturally, like fruit, lead to love, but it's not going to be this thing that I have to work up for myself. That is, those are the analogies that Jesus uses. This is why he, taught, he describes how a good tree can't bear bad fruit and vice versa. And therefore, when you are in this Christian understanding, motivations have been addressed and good works naturally arise. Not because you're working them up, but because they just, some change has happened within you. And so there's this pure process. He uses agricultural analogies. We could walk out there and say, spring, come, come on, spring, flowers, bud, please. It would do nothing to bring the spring. And he says that, the way Christ describes in the Gospels, is the way that our virtues come into existence in this natural way and not in this sense of aggressive working. Go ahead. the beauty of the paradox. Exactly. Go ahead. And that it, it, isn't the, um, the sting of the labor is removed because it's a joyful response based on Christ working within you and not you working for Christ. It's like um, if someone's, let's imagine for a moment if in your vocation, whatever your work is, um, if, if um, your boss said, hey, here's your paycheck for the entire year. Don't care if you come in or not. Like, what would you do, right? All right, see you later. But wouldn't it be amazing if you said, thank you, I'll, I'll be back. And I'm going to work just because of the pure joy. This is what I'm called to do. And that's what the Christian faith is like. The reward has been given. It's all been done for you. You have the paycheck. 
But you still show up to work because it's the right thing to do and you're inclined in the direction of the good. Go ahead. I think this works really well with Andrew's sermon. Yes. Right. Yes. Andrew hit that balance perfectly, didn't he? Of the danger of always the human heart, like in the chronic, is inclined in that direction. I want to make this something that, that I can control. Because covenants are not contracts, right? <laughs> Contract, oh, I'm doing a little bit, you do a little bit. That's what Nicodemus wanted, perhaps, from Jesus. But a covenant is something different entirely. It is a gift, something done on your behalf that we respond to. And one way, again, more material than we can cover here, but I wanted to briefly show you, there is one moment in Luther where he does concede something, I think, importantly to Aristotle. Remember, here's our Christ is the true light, where the true light of the gospel is making Aristotle and others go away. Because it's like, you don't understand how radical this is. I don't need your insights, right? Whoever wishes to apply himself to Aristotelian philosophy without danger to his soul must first be made truly foolish in Christ. <laughs> the grace of God is, in some senses, excess spending. It's, it's not thrifty. It's extravagant generosity. And once you understand that foolishness, sure, you can pick up your Aristotle again if that can help you. It might, right? <laughs> I like that moment where he said, okay, it's important to think about it. But at the end of the day, when we hit these theological virtues, let's beware and understand that tension with the virtues that we touched upon before. And if we do talk and think about Aristotle as we may need to, let's make sure we do that having already been made fools (laughs) because of the gospel. Anyone want to make a closing observation or comment? Or question, Joel. Um, you were asking earlier, you know, about practical experience with this, and I, I guess I would say that Christianity that I pretty much received was one that always emphasized grace, but always added the reward of heaven. Right. Yeah. And then heaven is not there and then, but here and now. And that is the, brings N.T. right into the conversation and brings our, our mural into the conversation of making, enabling the kingdom of God, be, be participating it here in the suburbs. Jay Wood, next week. Thanks for your contributions.